If you have your Bible with you, let's go to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we're going to be finishing out the chapter tonight, reading verses 31 through 40 this evening. We are in uh, the middle of the tabernacle, and uh, we are looking at the golden candlestick tonight. Exodus 25:31, And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls and his knops and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be of the same. All it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all, the ves- with all these vessels. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again we are asking you to um, arrest our attention this evening. That you would help us to discharge our minds from any other distractions of lesser things uh, that can wait until later or till tomorrow and that we would be wholly focused upon you, Lord, um, intently wanting to know and learn and understand why you gave this design and placed this piece of furniture in your tabernacle to be a witness. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to obey. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just remind ourselves of what is going on at this section of Exodus. At this particular time, Moses is on Mount Sinai. They, they have been delivered out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has fallen. God has brought them to Mount Sinai. God has descended on Mount Sinai in a pillory fire like an earthquake. He speaks verbally from Mount Sinai and gives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then God calls Moses up into the mount to commune with him and to give him the pattern for the tabernacle and all the contents in it. And so Moses at this point is on Mount Sinai receiving the design plans for the tabernacle from God while the nation of Israel some two and a half million of them, are camped throughout the valley around Mount Sinai. And so that, that is Exodus 25 through 31. The entire time Moses is on the mountain. The tabernacle is a tent, if you will. And it's approximately 15 feet wide. It's approximately 45 feet long and 15 feet tall. It has two rooms. So there is a curtain that divides it. uh, One-third, a 10 by 10 room in the back. And then two-thirds, a a, a, a 10 by 20 room in the front. 
And, uh, and then there are four pieces of furniture inside of this tent. In God's meeting with Moses, he gives him the pattern for the furniture. And so before he gives him the pattern for the fence that goes around the tent, or the altar that is in the yard of the tent, or the basin that's in the yard of the tent, or the, the tent itself, he begins with the furniture. And God gives Moses first the pattern for the Ark of the Covenant, which is going to be in the back room, the Holy of Holies. And then he gave him the pattern for the table of shewbread, which is in the front room. And now he is giving him the pattern for the golden candlestick, which is also in the front room. Each piece of furniture is a silent prophet, if you will. Although they have no voice, they are speaking and they are testifying and they are typifying the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark speaks of the propitiation of the Lord. Propitiation is a theological word that means the sacrifice that satisfies the righteous judgment of God. And that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. The law is in the box, in the bottom. It is unbreakable, unmovable. And because of that, nobody can live up to it. So the box, the Ark, is covered with a mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled so that God can come and meet with man. And so the Ark speaks of the propitiation of the Lord. And then the table speaks of the provision of the Lord for his people. If you remember, the table of shoe bread was to have 12 loaves of bread on it at all times. Those loaves of bread were not offerings to God. They were speaking of God's provision for the people of Israel. In fact... It was made fresh every week, and at the end of the week, the priests had to consume or eat the bread in the tabernacle for themselves and then place the new bread on it. And so the table of showbread uh, speaks of the provision of the Lord. And then the candlestick speaks of the presence of the Lord with his people. You know, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 that in heaven there is no sun and that there's no need of a sun, S-U-M, because God and the Lamb are the light thereof. And so this lighted candle stand is speaking of the presence of God with his people. The object of our study tonight is the golden candlestick. Uh, we could also refer to it as the menorah because that is the Hebrew word for it. It's still used now uh, in the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, which is celebrated uh, roughly around the time that we celebrate Christmas, but it has nothing to do with the Messiah. It actually has to do with the rebuilding and rededication of the temple uh, during the time of the Maccabeans. And so uh, it is located in the front room uh, of the tabernacle along with the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And so as we are orientating ourselves, uh, there is one entrance into the tabernacle. You come in from the east side and the golden candlestick would be to your left or to the south. And then across from it to the north side would be the table of showbread and the altar of incense would be directly in front of the priest as they entered in. We are told that this candelabrum is made out of pure gold. It is 
a little different than the ark or the table because they were made out of wood and overlaid in gold. This item is to be made out of pure gold, like the mercy seat. And it is to be forged and hammered out and shaped and uh, beaten and molded and, and put together. Uh, it, it has one central shaft on this candle stand that is connected to a base that holds it up so that it would sit on the ground. And then coming out of each side of it would be three symmetrical branches opposite of one another so that you would have seven lights in total. The central shaft would have a light and then the three branches on each side. And even though the branch would come out in a descending order, they would all rise to be at the same level so that all seven lights would be all at the same level. Uh, the golden lampstand was a beautiful work of art. As with everything that is placed into God's tabernacle, it, it, it was made by gifted craftsmen. As a matter of fact, later we will find that God has gifted certain Israelites with the knowledge to know how to do the woodworking and the metalworking and, and the tapestry and to do all of these things. And they, they like we learned this morning, like us, were to use their gifts to build that meeting place for God. And so this golden lampstand is a beautiful work of art with almond-shaped bowls at the top of each branch along with ornamental buds and decorative blossoms that would have been coming down those branches. Uh, this menorah was made to look as if it were a living tree with three stages of life. So think about this for a moment as we're reading the design. I know that you can get lost when it talks about the knops and the almonds and you know that sort of thing. But what it is describing is that this this candle abra is made to look like a tree, if you will, and a tree that has all three stages of life on it. It has the bud, it has the blossom, and it has the almond. Now here's a neat little side note that I, I think helps us to understand the significance of that. Uh, later after this, there comes a time when there's a challenge to the Aaronic priesthood. Why does Aaron get to be the priest? Why is it the house of Levi that gets to be the ones who, who get the tabernacle duty and the rest of us have to live this regular life? And so God says, okay, Moses, here's what you will do. You will have each tribal leader bring a rod, a stick, right, a dead stick, a, a piece of wood that's been cut off of a tree that has their tribal insignia inscribed on it. And they were to lay all 12 of them in the tabernacle and leave them overnight. And then when they returned the next morning, the, the rod that has budded to life would represent or signify which tribe God had chosen. And if you remember uh, how that goes, Aaron's rod is the one that budded. But do you realize that it didn't have just one uh, evidence of life? It says in Numbers 17, 8, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And so what you see there 
is that not only is this a picture uh, of the fact that this, this was God's chosen, it was indisputable. There was not anybody that could say, well, it just has a bud or it just has a blossom or, or, you know, it just has an almond on it. No, God in a demonstration of his resurrection power and signifying which tribe he was choosing, he took a dead branch and resurrected it to life and gave evidence of all three stages of life for that branch. Not only is this a picture of God's resurrection power, But it's also significant uh, as the almond tree is the first tree that blooms and produces fruit in Israel. And so why is it an almond and an almond blossom and an almond bud? Well, the almond tree in the Middle East is the very first one that comes uh, to fruition. And it it can bloom and blossom and yield fruit as early as January. And so for those people living in that land, they know that. They know that that's the first one, that's the first tree that's going to bud. And so God is using that as the significance of life, first life, and resurrection life. So the almond tree seems to be the inspiration for the decorative design of this candle stand. The measurements of the candlestick are not given in this text like they are for the table of showbread or like they were for the Ark of the Covenant, but the weight of the gold is given. We are told there that it was, uh, uh, the weight of the gold was one talent, one talent. Now, there's couple of different, uh, historically different. Uh, there was a Babylonian talent, and then there was a, uh, I forget, another uh, archaic talent, and, and, and there's a, a slight discrepancy. Uh, in, in one uh, periodic, it was 108 pounds, one talent. The other one, it was 129 pounds. So we, we, can, just, we can just say this, it weighed over 100 pounds, pure gold. So even though we're not given the exact dimensions, it does give us some sort of framework to understand that this was probably the tallest piece of furniture in that front room as it was made out of a lot of gold and it was elevated to give light in that room. The stated purpose of the golden candlestick was to give light for the holy work of the priesthood. Uh, We find it here in verse 37, Thou shalt make seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. It's repeated in chapter 35, verse 14, chapter 40, verse 4, uh, chapter 40, verses 24 and 25, and uh, Numbers 8, 1 through 4. And so uh, it's obvious, but God makes sure that we don't miss the point. What's the point of the candlestick? Well, the primary point is that it gives light for the holy work of the priesthood. Uh, The light of the candlestick was fueled by oil. It was an oil-burning lamp, if you will. So even though the King James translated candlestick, there aren't any wax candles on it. Those bowls that were made like unto almonds actually held oil and uh, it would have been lit and fueled the, the light. Uh, I, I remember growing up as a kid in West Virginia uh, that uh, everybody I knew of had oil burning lamps somewhere in their house. Now, 
Uh, either they were decorative or they were for emergencies when the power went out, right? And, uh, and so that is a technology that is as old as we see here going all the way back to the time of Moses. They figured out that they could use oil and that it was a fuel that would burn slowly and uh, give illumination. And so uh, the light of the candlestick was fueled by oil. That oil had to be refreshed every evening. And the light, the lamp was lit at the evening uh, altar of incense burning, and then uh, it was put out in the morning. Uh, the lamp was to be lit every night continually. And so from the time that they make this lampstand and they build this tabernacle, God's command was that it was to be a continual light. So every night, every single night in Israel, that lampstand was to be lit and it was to be continued to be lit. And we find that in Leviticus 24, 1 through 4, Exodus 27, 20 and 21 and Exodus 39, 37. So again, God wants his people to get it. This is a continual witness. This is an unending witness. This is not to be temporary. This is not to be season on, season off. But it was to be a continual witness to his presence. Now, just as the light of the lamp would have cast shadows at a distance, I say that the golden candlestick foreshadows things to come. Just like the tabernacle foreshadows and the ark foreshadows and the altar foreshadows the works of Christ, so too the candlestick foreshadows things to come. And so if you are adventurous tonight and think you can find the book of Zechariah, uh, go there with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets uh, near the end of your Old Testament, right before the last book of Malachi. You will find Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4, as you're finding your place there, let me remind you that the theme of the book of Zechariah, the theme of the prophet, was the king is coming. And there are more messianic uh, prophecies in the book of Zechariah per verse uh, than nearly any other book in the Old Testament. We learn many things uh, like where Christ will be born and the price that was paid for him and how that he was pierced. But in Zechariah chapter 4, there's an interesting vision given to the prophet, and it's the vision of the golden candlestick. Look and see if any of this sounds familiar. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. 
Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me, and he said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, there's a lot of prophecy that's going on in there, and we can't get into all of that. We'll get too far away from what we're trying to uh, see in this candlestick. But what I, I want you to see is that this candlestick that is described and introduced and stands as a witness in the tabernacle. We know uh, from Hebrews that this is a pattern of the temple in heaven and that God is using it to foreshadow the Messiah and his work when he comes. And so we fast forward hundreds of years after uh, the nation of Israel has been taken captive and, uh, and they are losing hope in Israel and God begins giving prophecies to Zechariah, to Isaiah, to Malachi, to, to Jeremiah and saying the king is coming. There's going to be a restoration in Israel. At this time, the temple has been dismantled. There's no temple worship. There is no candle abra in the temple at this time. But he makes a reference to Zerubbabel, and if we cross-reference that and go back and look, it's a reference to Ezra who is building, rebuilding the temple in those days or shortly thereafter. And he's saying, hey, look, the temple's going to be rebuilt. The lampstand's going to be there. But then what he gives him a picture of is not just the earthly lampstand, but he is saying, hey, look, there's a greater lampstand that is coming. There's a greater witness, a greater presence. And let me tell you, the oil is not going to be the oil that you can harvest. It is going to be a divine oil. It's going to be a heavenly oil. It is going to be an oil of the anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And like Zechariah, you might scratch your head and say, what is the meaning of all this? Like, don't you love, don't you, don't you love uh, how God just torques those prophets? Man. Don't you know what this means? Well, no, I don't know what this means, right? How do I know what this means? You've given me some vision. I've never seen it before. I don't know what these things will. Think about Ezekiel, a wheel inside of a wheel spinning in heaven. I mean, like, God is giving them visions of heavenly things, prophetic things, things that are yet to come. He is transcending time and, and periods, and, and, and yet they are the recipients. They don't understand everything, but they are faithful to proclaim it and write it down. And you and I are in the same boat with Zechariah. We're saying, well, what does all of this mean? And so I would uh, quickly and, uh, and try to uh, uh, simply say this about the candlestand, about the prophecy. Number one, the golden candlestick is a picture of Jesus 
who is the light of the world. The golden candlestick is a picture of Jesus, who is the light of the world. This seems to be an emphasis of John, and so if you go to the book of John, John chapter 1, John begins the story of Jesus uh, further back than Mark. Mark begins with his public ministry uh, further uh, back than uh, uh, then with uh, Matthew, it begins with his birth and, and Luke. John begins in eternity past. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus in this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the what? The light. It was the light of men, and, and, and the light shineth in darkness. But the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, capital L-I-G-H-T, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Once again, capitalized, speaking of Jesus. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Make no mistake about it, John understood that the typology of light that has been laid out in Scripture from Genesis 1 with the creation of light is finding its culmination in Jesus Christ as the true light of the world that will light every man and woman who receives him. John doesn't just say it in the opening chapter. If you look at John chapter 8, verse 12, we find that Jesus says this same thing of himself. In John 8, 12, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Again, chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. And so John records how that Jesus is the light of the world. And just as that lampstand was the light in the tabernacle, and in the darkness of night the light would continually shine so that the priesthood of God could do the holy work that they were called upon to do so that in Israel if they looked toward the tabernacle they could see the glow of the candelabra coming out from underneath the curtain of the doorway it was a perpetual testimony that God is with us and he brings light to our darkness but there's one other aspect to this, because you see, Jesus says in another place, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But remember, he left this world. 
We talked about that this morning. He actually told his disciples, it's good for you that I'm going away. He ascended into heaven after his resurrection. We are waiting on his return. And so are we waiting in darkness? Is there no light left in the world since Jesus has ascended? No. The second point I want to make tonight is that the golden candlestick with its one main shaft and its six additional branches... Picture believers in Christ as the light in the darkness. Now, I don't get too much wrapped up in numerology. I I think that people can begin to read all kinds of stuff into it. But it does strike me that six is the number of man. And that seven is the number of God. And in that candlestick, we have the seventh that is distinctly different from the six. And you and I, though we be but flesh and blood, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, he is the vine and we are the branches. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. Well, how can he be the light of the world and we are the light of the world? Only if we are the branches in his candle stand. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I say to you that though Jesus, who is the light of the world, has ascended into heaven, he has not left the world without a light. But thee, we as believers in Christ, like the branches of that candle, Abra, are still shining the light, or supposed to be shining the light in the darkness. I like what... Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.8. He says, you sometimes were darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And just as that raw gold could not produce light of itself when it was formed and fashioned by the master craftsman and filled with the oil prescribed by God and ignited, it too would give light. And though you and I do not naturally have this light within us, when we get born again and we become the created workmanship of God and he grafts us into the vine of Christ, we too then become light bearers and light givers. I especially like the way that Philippians 2, 15 and 16 describes it because you and I, I think, having this quality of light about us, become very sensitive to the darkness of the world. I remember noticing that after I got saved. Before I got saved, my sin, my darkness wasn't that bad. I knew a lot of people who were as bad as or worse than me. And then after I got saved, began growing in the Lord, reading his word, and I became very sensitive to sin, and not the sin of everybody else, my own sin. I would say that the conviction 
over my sin grew deeper a few months after I got saved than it was the night that I was convicted to believe on Jesus Christ because I began to realize how dark I had been, how absent of light I had been, how sinful I had been. And I think that as you and I uh, are light bearers of Christ in this world, we begin to realize it's a pretty dark place. And Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, and he says this, that, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. And so that is the great responsibility and opportunity of us as the church, as believers in Christ. We have the fuel of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to shine light in this world. And again, unless you think that I am simply trying to connect dots that are not connectable, I would ask you to journey with me one more time to the book of Revelation where we'll finish out our study tonight. Revelation chapter 1, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's been imprisoned there for uh, preaching Christ. And he says that he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. And when he turns to look, he, he sees a vision like he's never seen before. Revelation 1, 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Hold on. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, Clothe the garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance as the sun shineth in his strength and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his hand his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not I am the first and the last I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore amen and have the keys of hell and death and watch this Write the things which thou hast seen, and these things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so as we connect Scripture with Scripture, we discover that God for thousand years ago instructed Moses to build a lampstand out of gold that it was to be a continual witness and a light in the tabernacle and that after some time when Israel had lost its way God sends a prophecy through Zechariah and he says hey look what do you see and he says well I see a golden candlestand but this golden candle stand is unlike the original one. This one actually has olive trees that are filling it constantly with oil so that the light never goes out. And then we enter into the pages in the New Testament. We discover that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the true light that lights every man that comes to him. And though he has ascended into heaven, he has left behind the branches that are connected and that are the light givers and today the candlestick that is left in this world are the churches of Jesus Christ that we are to shine our light that we are to hold forth the word of life that we may shine as lights in a crooked and perverse nation and that's confirmed by the final revelation where John sees Jesus walking among the seven golden candlesticks but I must leave us with this word of warning uh, the last mention really of a candlestick and that's in Revelation chapter 2 verse 5 where Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus we know the history of this church it began with the Apostle Paul back in Acts chapter 19. It becomes a strong, vibrant center for evangelism. It is from Ephesus that the interior of Asia Minor is evangelized. It has some wonderful pastors. Timothy pastors there. As Paul writes First and Second Timothy, Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. We are told that John himself pastored the church at Ephesus for a while. We are in the midst of a study of a book that is written to the Ephesians and he's not dealing with all kinds of problems like he is with the Corinthians. He is really writing one of his, his greatest treaties on the, the church ministry as we know it in the life of Christians. And yet some 30 years after that, Jesus speaks to this church and he says, I know, I know your history, I know your work, I, I know what you are doing, but I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. You've gotten away from the main thing. You are to be the light giver. You are to be the one that is shining the light of Christ's world. Christ ought to be the central object or the central focus of your worship and your life. And he admonishes them and he tells them that they are to remember from whence they are fallen and that they are to repent change their minds, reverse action, go back and do the first works. Listen to this last statement from the lips of Christ, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy, what is it, candlestick, out of his place, except thou repent. 
Here's the reality. The light will never go out. It will burn continually until Jesus comes back. But there are churches that get away from the main thing. There are churches that leave their first love. They have a rich history and a heritage. They have many, many spiritual accomplishments in their past. But in their present, Christ is no longer central to their mission and to their worship. And sadly, a church like that just doesn't shine for very long. And they will lose their ability to be light in their community. And the fact is, if we wanted to, we could take a brief survey of church history and, and I could point you to churches all around the world, all around America, and even in Virginia, where once they were shining bright for Jesus, and now there is no light there. Some have ceased to even exist. And so, my friends, you and I, I believe, have a divine responsibility. You see, because there is no longer an Aaronic priesthood. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says to John that he has made all believers priests and kings to God. And so you and I, as the royal priesthood of God today, have a responsibility to keep the light shining. To make sure that it doesn't go out. To keep the fuel in supply. And so may we go from this place tonight determined to be lights. Determined to shine, to live differently, to talk differently, to react differently. To not be embarrassed or ashamed to say what we believe if it is biblical. So that we continue to shine the light. And most importantly, may we be gospel tellers. Telling the word of life to all who will listen. Let me tell you something. It, it, just, it really just takes you and I determining to do that. Quick story. Melissa and I went to Boone last week. The kids had went to camp. And we thought, hey, we're going to get away for a couple of days. And... Uh, and so we had fun, and the hotel that we went to stay at, uh, Melissa and I have gotten in the habit of working out, and so we're, we're trying to do that, even though we ate horribly while we were on vacation. We thought, well, let's try to get a workout in. And so we go down to the front desk, hey, you know, you got a workout room here. No, we don't have one on site, but we've got a membership at Anytime Fitness, and you can go there for free. Great, so we get the, the key card, and we go to Anytime Fitness. And so, Boone, Appalachian State, you know, it's a lot of college-age people. I'm probably the oldest guy in there, at least in the weight room. And uh, I'm back there trying to do these overhead presses. And, and so, you know, you got the bar on the rack, and you're going from your shoulders up. And, uh, and there's a guy that comes over, and he comes to rack some weight, and he has to come over beside of my, my, uh, my uh, squat rack station, and, and all of a sudden, another guy starts jumping rope. And so this dude's like stuck beside of me, like while I'm doing a set. And so I guess he can't help but look. And he says, hey, if you don't mind, when I got done, can I ask you how old you are? Man, you know, why is that? That, that, that becomes the most common question I get nowadays. 
And it really has made me self-conscious. Do, do, uh, do I look extremely older and they are very shocked to see that I have some physical fitness at my age? I'm, I'm not quite sure how to take that. And so I told him how old I was and he seemed to be impressed that I was doing overhead presses at my age. I said, how old are you? And uh, he was half my age. He's 24. And, uh, and so uh, he, he uh, had a little rapport there, and he asked me this question. He says, what's the secret to youth? How, how do you keep doing this? And I thought for a minute, because, you know, I've got all my nutrition stuff, and, you know, I, I, I can lay that out. And I thought, wait a minute. I don't know if I'll ever see this kid again. And so I said, well, the first thing I would tell you is to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and that will clean up a whole lot of other bad habits that are harmful to your health. And then we began talking and going on. Now, he wasn't open to having a full-blown gospel presentation in that moment. But at least I can walk away saying, hey, you know what? I took that opportunity to try and shine some light. And maybe down the road somebody else will do the same. And maybe that will make an impression on him that instead of the first thing I talked about was my nutrition or my routine or my supplements, it was my Savior. And so I'm telling you, we just got to determine to be witnesses, whether it's at the grocery store or at the doctor's office or at the family reunion, we need to shine the light. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads, close our eyes, just a moment. Just want to pray together tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the light that shined into our darkness. So thankful, Lord, that your Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see and allowed us, Lord, to become believers. Lord, we know that there are many people who are still lost in the darkness. We don't think that we are better than they are or that we are smarter than we, they are or uh, that we have earned more than they have, we know that it is simply by your grace that we have been saved. And we want to share that grace with others. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to do what you designed us to do, that we would shine the light, that, that, that we would not inhibit or block the flow of the fuel of the Holy Spirit that causes us to shine that we might hold forth the word of life so that we shine as lights in a crooked and perverse nation. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to be faithful witnesses as you give us opportunity in the days ahead. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.